Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome once again. Thank you very much for joining us, and we always love to hear the lively uh, chatter amongst our guests and welcome you again. Uh, please join me now in welcoming our television and webcast viewers. My name is Danny Asaf, and I am the president of the Canadian Club in Toronto, of Toronto, and thank you again for joining us today. The Canadian Club is proud of its long tradition in providing a forum for leaders in all spheres of society to share their ideas with you. Through our programs and activities, including our youth and young leaders programs, diversity partnerships, media and social opportunities, we offer you access to dynamic political, business, and public figures, both from here and abroad. And before I formally introduce today's topic and the panelists who will join us today, I would like to take an opportunity to tell you about some of our upcoming events. To kick off our new year, we will present our 39th annual Outlook Luncheon. The GTAs, we're proud to say, we believe best political and economic forecasting event on June 6th, which again will be hosted by our uh, colleague, Bruce Celery. We welcome you to join us for that. And on June 20th, we are proud to be hosting General Stanley McChrystal. He's uh, retired from the U.S. Army and will be at our podium to talk about what military training and organizational experience can teach us about leadership in today's modern business world. You can order tickets and review the club's full list of upcoming events at canadianclub.org. You may also join the conversation via Twitter. Please follow us at CDNCLBTO or by simply using that hashtag. Now, I would like to take an opportunity to thank our generous sponsors for their support. Uh, without whom we wouldn't be able to have this great event. And I'd like to recognize Ernst & Young, Scotiabank, and RBC. Thank you for being here, and thank you for making our event possible. Now, today, the topic that we are all excited to hear about, uh, disruption in the financial services industry, is going to be uh, hell, uh, discussed under the... Uh, the, moderation, the moderation of Bruce Celery, and he will take the opportunity to introduce all of our guest speakers individually and to tell us where we can see the future of this very important business that touches our, the heart of our economy and the heart of how we bank and how we buy and what we'll be able to look forward to in the future with all of these great voices and perspectives. Bruce, may I welcome you to our panel, and the stage is yours. Okay. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you. Uh, I love this topic. I love this topic because financial services is such an enormous contributor to the economy, to uh, revenue, to profit, to the number of employees who work for this industry across the country. But I also love it as consumers because we engage in this category in a regular and visceral way. And I can tell you that is sometimes a great thing, like when they uh, allowed you to take a photograph of your check and deposit it without going into a branch. It was like magic in my phone. And then there are times, I moved this summer in July, so I needed to change my address. Do you think I could change my address online? No. It took me three phone calls, investments, bank, and credit cards. It's December, and I still receive mail to my prior address. So financial services is an area in which we engage in at the macro level and also at the consumer level, and it is changing. 
Whether or not it is incremental change or transformational change, we don't know yet, but uh, we've got some great people who can provide their perspective on this question. Two disruptors, two representatives of big established banks, and one analyst who sees the entire industry through the, uh, through the lens of P&L. It is my great pleasure to introduce our guests, and as they wander up here, please hold your applause, and we'll get set to go. First off, Michael Katchen, founder and CEO of Wealth Simple. Wealthsimple is Canada's fastest-growing online investment advisor, or robo-advisor is the colloquial term. He used to lead marketing at 1000 Memories, which is a Silicon Valley-based startup that was acquired by Ancestry.com in 2012. He is a former consultant at McKinsey and a graduate of the Ivy School of Business at Western. Andrew Graham co-founder and CEO of BorrowWell, a Canadian marketplace lending platform serving consumers with good credit scores. I'm sure you're all in his target then. He led the insurance business at PC Financial and had held uh, roles in corporate strategy and M&A with the Weston Group. His MBA is from the Harvard Business School. He also has an MA in economics from the University of Edinburgh. Peter Rutledge is next, Managing Director and Research Analyst covering banking and insurance at National Bank Financial. Prior to NBF, he, was, uh, he led the Canadian Financial Institutions Group at Moody's. He has an MBA from INSEAD in France, a bachelor's degree uh, in business and economics from Simon Fraser, and has also worked at A.T. Kearney and Canadian Pacific. Next up is Linda Mantia, Executive Vice President, Digital Payments, Digital Payments and Cards at RBC. She joined RBC in 2003 as the SVP of the Innovation and Process Design Teams. She's held a number of different roles there, including COO of private client, uh, uh, global private banking based in London, England. Prior to RBC, she was uh, associate principal at McKinsey. Before that, a partner at Davies, Warden & Beck, and a graduate of the Faculty of Law at Queen's University. And finally, Mike Henry, Executive Vice President, Retail Payments, Deposits, and Unsecured Lending at Scotiabank. He joined Scotiabank in 1996 after seven years with another Canadian financial institution and has held many different roles in product development, sales management, marketing, wealth management, and sales and service. He has a Bachelor of Arts degree from the University of Toronto and an MBA from Schulich. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your panelists. Hello, everybody. Hello. Michael, I want to start with you. Well, simple. I said robo-advisor. You didn't say a robo-advisor, but I did. You didn't you see have... my face when you said that. Is that okay? <laughs> did you grimace a, a little bit? bit? A little yeah, bit. okay. Well, you tell me why I'm not allowed to call it that. You have backing from Power Financial. You just made an acquisition of a brokerage, shareholder investments. What is your mission? What is your mission? Yeah, quite simply, our, our mission is to make investing easy for everybody. And when you think about the financial services world, you know, there's some problems inherent into it, in it. Um, the first is access. Unless you have a ton of money, you can't access great advice. Most account minimums start, you know, at pretty sizable investment minimums. Two is fees. In Canada in particular, we pay some of the highest fees of any country in the world when it comes to financial services. And three is the experience. You know, how many people love dealing with their bank or love dealing with their investment provider? Uh, we're trying to create, you know, through technology, a very simple, seamless, transparent experience uh, and apply that to every element of investing. You skew young. I mean, your clients do. Uh, what about the, that target is different from those of us who are somewhere north of 40? What's different? How do they behave differently? How do they think differently? I think expectations are a little bit different. I think, um, you know, this is a generation that's grown up on mobile phones and, and uh, with the, you know, the Internet being just core to every element of our lives and our experience. We've come to demand very simple experiences from that. And if I think about why we started the business... You know, we basically created a service for ourselves and people like us. 
We didn't really want to hire traditional investment advisors. Uh, we didn't really want to do it ourselves. And so we created this model that brought those two things together. And our first clients have been a lot like that. You know, people that age 25 to 40 demographic that uh, have a very different expectation of the financial services. Andrew, you have a background in financial services. Why did you choose the lending uh, vertical to go after with your startup? That, uh, you know, there's so much that we think is broken about consumer lending uh, around the world, but in Canada in particular. The, um, the problem that sort of gets me most excited and gets the, the, the rest of the world team most excited is credit card debt. So in Canada, we know that consumer debt is, is a, you know, a, a big and growing challenge. And there's $82 billion of credit card debt in Canada. And credit cards are a great way to transact. They're a great way to buy things. But it turns out they're not a very good way to borrow money. But about 40% of credit card holders do actually borrow money. And, you know, credit cards are strange because unlike, you know, car insurance or something where you get credit for being a better driver, virtually everybody pays the same on credit card. I bet 90% of us in the room pay 19.9 on our credit cards. Um, and we just don't think that's a fair way uh, to have people borrow. So what, what we do is you can come to our website. If I'm saying something today that isn't exciting for you, take out your phone. I won't be offended. You can go to our website. You can apply um, very, very quickly. and You'll get an instant answer whether you qualify for one of our loans. And the better your credit history, according to our assessment of it, as our algorithms and our technology assess it, you'll get a lower rate. So our rates start as low as 5.6%. And your funding comes from where? So our funding comes from institutional investors who are looking to get higher yield. So today we have a, uh, a Schedule One Canadian bank called Equitable Bank uh, that's purchasing loans off our platform. We have a family office that's, pur- that's purchasing loans off our platform. And there are many, many big institutional investors around the world that are uh, very excited about these kinds of assets. So BlackRock and Jefferies in the U.S., for example, have done hun- you know, multi-hundred million dollar deals purchasing assets um, off platforms like ours in other jurisdictions. So, Peter, you're report in October that struck me was titled In Defense of the Golden Goose, and you said this threat, the threat to PNC in particular, is clear, present, intensifying, and has staying power. It sounds like a preview for the next Jurassic Park movie, that ominous, (laughs) in a world where dinosaurs roam the earth. You also have said that you are playing catch-up. What do you think that you missed on this disruption theme? Uh, How concerned the banks are about the threat from uh, players to my left. And, I mean, the historic precedent, uh, I'll go back to the technology industry. IBM dominates computing in the 1970s, makes big 3090 mainframe computers for railways and banks and and the General Electrics of the world. And two guys from who dropped out of Harvard walk in the door and, and say, oh, yeah, we just uh, have this operating system called MS-DOS. And, uh, you know, you can use it for your, your, your new personal computers, which I know isn't really a big or an important business in your, in your organization. But the only, the only, the only catch is we will only license you MS-DOS. We won't sell it to you. And that one little decision created Microsoft. Linda, how worried are you? That's where Peter began his answer. Uh, how worried are you? I think we've seen the opportunities that are presenting themselves from technology for a while. I mean, the one area we've been doing R&D, which isn't common for banks, for years has been mobile. Since e-commerce, we saw the beginnings of a lot of different technologies that once they'd come together, everything we imagined back in the dot-com era were coming to fruition. So geolocation, you know, that that big data piece that um, our friends on the left are uh, using, 
we saw it coming, and you know, it's an exciting time. We always look back at our history and say we're used to this. You know, the relevant convenience, the security is transforming. I think what's exciting, and that's why I agree with Peter around the size of the change, is that everything is coming together at the same time. And I think what we've been talking about is that ruthless client centricity that startups have and can build their systems and their organizations from the client down versus from the products up, which is where the banks were, I think does make it a challenge. But I think it's a great time for consumers. It's only made things better. One of your clients is John Stackhouse. He is the former editor. He's here. Okay, great. Well, hey, John. So John wrote this book about mass disruption in the media industry. I have interviewed him on that book. What would you say is your number one learning from other industries, not just media, but industries that has disrupted, that have disrupted in the past? Yeah, I think the good thing about what I hope is healthy paranoia is looking at those stories all the time. You know, we look at Blockbuster, we look at Kodak, you know, and in each of those, what did Blockbuster miss? They were not paranoid about their business model and looking at the friction that customers had when they'd come in to pick things up and have to rewind it and bring home the wrong video, whereas Netflix was right there to capitalize on the technology that would allow super convenient streaming in your house. Mm. We look at Kodak. They were the ones who invented the Polaroid camera. And top people didn't listen to what this could create, the digital camera. So we look at those lessons and we say, what are those irritants? I mean, you uh, talked about your address being changed. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah. <laughs> really nice. Don't mention which bank that was. Um, but, uh, but we have to look at two ways. One is the irritants that people shouldn't have to deal with. And then second, what does technology create to really create the wow experience? And how do we ensure that the people sitting in the top jobs are listening to those younger people who are growing up with the expectations that, that uh, Mike started out with? They are growing up with different expectations. They do want things to be as simple as a thought and a touch and be done. So, uh, Mike, in our pre-conversation, uh, one thing you said which struck me was that you think the media might be, uh, this might be getting overblown in the media. Tell me why. I said that? You did say that. that My tape recorder was on, and you said that. I thought that was off the record. No. no. Listen, so as I understand it, media's job is to sell more media uh, and to attract advertising, and so I'm not going to Advertising's suggest, dead. I'm not, not going to suggest some of that is ever overblown, but, but apparently I did say that to you. Um, look, I think Scotiabank's been here for 183 years. Other big banks, same story. We have seen change before. And we spend an awful lot of time looking outside of the organization to see how things, how the world around us is changing, and we do that to try and better our customers. Um, we really fundamentally believe that our reason for being is to help our customers get ahead financially. And that means borrowing to get ahead, um, and that means investing to get ahead. And so as long as we're focused outside the bank and we're, we're learning the lessons that Linda just talked about, which I totally agree with, uh, then we can make our own investments to make sure that the way we deliver advice, the way we deliver financial solutions and service to our customers is going to keep pace. You uh, have something new called the Digital Factory. You took great pains to tell me that it is a factory and not a lab, which I have no idea what you're going to explain to me the difference. And I also want to know if there is free food. So if this is a tech incubator, <laughs> do you get free food? So we, uh, yeah, so we did, we announced recently the creation of the Scotiabank Digital Factory. Very happy and very excited about that. In fact, as, as much as it was a fairly recent announcement, it's something we've been doing for a while. And so we call this thing a factory, not a hub or a lab, 
because it is designed to produce commercial value for the organization and more importantly for our customers. So what is it? It, it is a location where we can bring together innovation, we can bring together co-creation with outside partners, we can bring together advanced analytics, all things mobile, many things payments, and get all of the people that are doing these things and have them work together. And our hope is it would feel very much similar to uh, the environment that Andrew and Mike and their teams would probably work in. And so you get the benefit of these kind of collision events happening between all these people sharing things. And it's all about trying to make us more agile, not agile just in the kind of cliched development methodology sense of the world for IT people in the room, but agile just in terms of being nimble and being able to take things and do better for our customers. And the, and the food. There is food, yes. There's there is food. food. Okay. Absolutely. There is food. Michael, is what you have heard and seen coming from the big banks, is this true and genuine innovation, or is this public relations? <laughs> Talk about being put on the spot. I'd say um, if we're being a little bit controversial here for the purposes of this group, uh, I'd say it's a bit of both. I mean, I think the reality is uh, the intentions are certainly there, and I think the investments are being made. Uh, I think we have yet to see what comes out of it. And I'd point to two examples of, of where I think there needs to be a mind shift, mind shift change from, from the banks. Uh, you mentioned, you know, mobile deposits with, with checks as this great innovation. I think the banks that have launched these technologies in the last year have celebrated them as massive innovations. The reality is they've been available for five years in other countries. When I lived in California, I was doing this five years ago. So I'd say, one, is we have to really think what is innovation, and not just think about it in the Canadian context, but really try and be on the forefront of it globally, as what's next in financial services, and look to ourselves to be the pioneers of that. Um, and so, so that, that would be the first point that, that I'd make on that. Andrew, what would you say would prevent the big banks from doing exactly what you do, in, including providing a loony for each of us at our table? <laughs> just, you know... I hope that everyone feels a sufficient guilt for receiving that, that you'll, <laughs> you don't want to apply a for a loan. Uh, in fact, Mike and I were saying, what would be really great is if you could take a loan with Borowell and then use it to invest with Wealthsimple if you want to support Perfect. innovation. Perfect. You know, I, I think, but the barriers um, to entry are not high. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, you know, look, we've got, we're lucky in Canada to have um, very successful banks filled with very smart people running them. So we don't, you know... Our th thesis with Borowell is not that we're any smarter than the folks who are running RBC, Scotia, and other banks. I think one of the, the ironically, the challenges that our banks have is that they've been so successful and generate, you know, such um, astoundingly high uh, profit. I mean, RBC, congratulations on $10 billion. <laughs> I mean, you just pause for a second, $10 billion of profit. That's not revenue, that's profit. I mean, that's an, an astounding number for a bank that's based in a country with 35 million people. And if you look, you know, one thing I think is fascinating, if you line up the profit, profitability in absolute terms of banking sectors across the world, so not on a per capita basis, but in absolute terms, Canada, with 35 million people, has the fourth largest pool of banking profits of any country in the world. It's like China, you, you know, the U.S., and Canada's fourth. So there's more uh, banking profit being generated in Canada than in, like, the, US, uh, the U.K., excuse me, or Germany. And, like, you know, on the one hand, for anyone who's, a, who's been a shareholder of, of large banks in the last 20 years, that's been a great thing. I think the challenge, though, is you, get, you can get locked into profitable but suboptimal business models when you're in a very successful organization. So, you know, I, I, can, I can sort of picture what the conversation must be like when someone comes into the, you know, the head of innovation comes in and says to the boardroom and says, uh, look, I've got a great idea for a new um, online lending product or an online investing product. It's going to be great for the consumers 
Uh, and look, if we don't do this ourselves, someone else is going to come and disrupt us. And we have all the capabilities, we have huge budgets, we have smart people, we can do it all. And then the head of wealth or the head of credit card says, do you know what my quarterly target is? Do you know the numbers I have to hit this year? Are you crazy? You want to take our best, our most profitable customers and flip them onto a Borowell or Wealth Simple like product? I think that's a very, very hard challenge for organizations that have very profitable business lines. Linda, how hard a challenge is that? Because those are conversations you must have, you know, as often as you think, what am I going to have for lunch? Yeah, and they definitely do come up. And I think that's that's one of the lessons learned around when the stories I talked about about other companies. How do you cannibalize yourself when technology is ready to be able to do that? We do have a low-rate interest card. Our front line has always been um, very focused on what we call a relationship bank and driving clients to the right solutions that they currently have. I think technology will make that slicker and easier than in the past where someone would have to go into the branch or call the call center to open up a product. But if you look, we have a low-rate credit card for people who want to borrow versus transact. We have home lines that have incredibly low interest rates, way lower than um, some of the ones that uh, the innovators are coming out with. But I think that the overall point is a very fair one in terms of how hard it is to cannibalize one's own business. And I do think everyone is looking at these technologies to say, when are we ready? How can we get the technology ready? So, Because you have this big back book that you can't forget about on how do you get the systems where they need to be. That dynamic pricing, as an example, is harder for a big bank until we rejig some of our systems. Peter, uh, uh, the RBC profit is now a data point in this conversation. Right. It is a golden goose here. Uh, what is going to happen on the margin front? So even if there isn't disruption, there will be new technologies that afford consumers the opportunity to do some things right. cheaper. Yeah, and as I'm going to refer to a Bank of Canada study done a couple of years ago, and they looked uh, at merchant. Uh, costs of processing transactions. And they said, well, for a $36.50 transaction, how costly is it to, for a merchant to process cash versus credit card? And the, the cash transaction cost the merchant $0.25, cents, and the credit card transaction cost them $0.85. Cents. So that's why when you pay with a credit card, you, at, to a small merchant, they stare darts at you, right? It's really expensive for them. Well, that's, that's the beautiful bank margin. Uh, Innovative disruptors, and Apple Pay, they're not here, would be one of them, are after that margin. I was talking to a U.S. investor a couple years ago who was trying to figure out the Canadian banking system. He says, well, wait a second. You've got, you know, your domestic operations will drive 30 to 35% ROEs, and there's no, uh, you know, foreign entry. There's no risk of disruption. I said, no, no, you know, it's the Bank Act. It's a, you know, a protected oligopoly in a sense that foreign players can't come in. Technology is that wedge to allow local local players to come in and begin to target those very, very rich margins. And when I wrote In Defense of the Golden Goose, I was worried about those margins. What is the line of business that you are most uh, worried about? Um, the credit cards right now, front and center, is, is, the, is the area I focus most on. It's that I'm most worried about because it's the fastest growing part of their domestic, of the bank's domestic businesses and it is so profitable. Again, you're moving from 25 cents transaction to 85 cents transaction. That's just great. And as we use credit cards more and more, that just increases the, uh, you know, earnings to the banks. Linda, your alma mater, McKinsey, in their report said the laggards in uh, fintech will see a 35% uh, decline in profit or profit erosion. How do you model the kind of changes and how they're going to impact the PNL over years? 
The industry's been modeling for a while. We've, uh, you know, recently uh, experienced the voluntary um, uh, changes that MasterCard and Visa made to reduce the interchange rates in Canada. So we look at all of the inputs. One is the interchange rate, interest rates, et cetera, and continue to look at as we can develop better technology solutions and things are more accessible to clients, some of that um, inherent, uh, you know, I'll call it clients who want to do better but they don't get around to doing better will be a lot easier. And that's what we're working towards. And we're all rushing because I do think the first big bank that can get out with some of these solutions that we do believe are better for the client and enhance our advice uh, promise, there will be a shift. So clearly there will be a shift of, uh, you know, winners and losers as technology comes, as it's always done that. Uh, Mike, how do you think about buy versus build and coordinate or cooperate and compete? How do you, what's the model that uh, seems to fit best for Scotia? Yeah, so we, um, there's a lot going on out there. And, and I would say today the, the problem we have is not a scarcity of ideas, it's too many ideas. Um, so that is where partnership comes into play. And, and we welcome the competition and innovation and potential for partnership that comes from new players like the ones uh, at the end to my left. So an example of that would be um, Scotiabank recently struck a partnership with a small company called Cabbage that would be a, a competitor to Andrews that's doing different forms of, of lending. Uh, so what we do to, to get to your question is we look and say if where certainty is high, then we would be more inclined to make bigger investments, in some cases build things ourselves. Where certainty is lower, because the world is still moving, we'll explore partnership. We also do, I think, um, have a great asset within Scotiabank in the form of Tangerine. Uh, And so we have an entirely separate, digitally-oriented direct bank that is a leader in the Canadian market in customer experience design, and we're able to leverage them as well to go try new things to deliver value for customers. So you're going to have Tangerine and Cabbage. So, <laughs> all right, okay, okay. So if I had a startup, it would be a food. It would know? be a food. <laughs> that would be a food. Linda, how do you answer that question? Buy versus build. How do you how do you think that through? Yeah, we're we're again very open. I mean, there's as as Mike said, there's a lot going on, and what's really exciting with how technology is allowing new players to come is there's a lot of very niche opportunities that are coming up, and it is hard for big organizations to have a hundred seeds and a thousand flowers blooming after that. So we do look at partners. We, we are using them more right now to accelerate some of the build that we're doing or to bring expertise in that we don't have. And there is, you know, we're at that stage in innovation where players have built great businesses, but they really want to partner with players like, you know, we do shape a big part of the Canadian industry. So we're quite lucky. We do have a lot of fintech players coming to talk to us and leverage our platforms so they can see if what they built can scale, if what they built can drive the kind of promise um, that they're looking for. So it is a good opportunity to partner. I think in terms of how do you filter, it's tough because if you know for sure what the future looks like, you've probably missed it. So um, you have to ensure that you experiment early. Michael, uh, one of the uh, line items that you believe could be ripe for disruption is insurance. How come? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, when you look across every line item in the, in the banking world, uh, we've seen tremendous amount on this front in the lending space, you know, all around the world with peer-to-peer lenders. Uh, and you see continued advancements in that and the introduction of it here in Canada. And in the investments world, we're seeing the same with models like ours. I think one that's been uh, uh, not really uh, approached in any meaningful way is, is insurance. And I think um, when you think about 
I think unlike some of the challenges that a bank would have about thinking about new opportunities in terms of margin and, and profitability, I always take the lens of what's the consumer experience. You know, how many people here have ever had to buy insurance? Almost everybody, I'm sure, even though we don't want to participate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and if you're driving a car and you don't have it, yeah, that's right. a terrible be a problem. <laughs> how many of you uh, thought it was a simple, transparent um, experience? Um, and in, in fact, if you look at the people that often are the ones that sell insurance and, and consultants, um, you know, it, it, the compensation structures are so complex and so opaque to the client, they never know if they're getting in the right plans. So if I think about a broken model for, from the client's perspective, I think insurance is, is one that will see a tremendous amount of innovation uh, in the years ahead. Uh, Peter, there are ideas out there, ones up here on stage with us and ones that we know in the marketplace that we know about. There are also ones we don't know we don't know. And you mentioned one called Ripple. Tell us in as, simply, as simple as a way as you can what that is and where it could uh, affect the Canadian industry. Uh, if you think about the traditional banking system, we have private players that keep track of all our payments and go back and forth between you and I, for example, if we if we transact. You owe me 20 bucks. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. So that would, if I were to write you a check, or uh, that would go through the traditional I'd banking system. I take a picture system. of it. And your bank and my bank have a ledger that, that we both trust and keeps track of our, 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 our deposit accounts. And Ripple, or the whole concept of a distributed ledger, and, and Bitcoin is built around this, is that rather than go through these hierarchical banking and ledger systems created by incumbent players and central banks, we can just go peer-to-peer through a trusted, and that's the key word, trusted, shared, uh, distributed ledger. Distributed ledger where everyone knows all the transactions in the system. And that really is longer-term disruptive to me because now you're, you're, you're funneling payments outside the traditional uh, payment system which is the nut and bread of the, 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 the margin or the profitability of the banking system. So if I had one word to, for folks to walk away from and maybe do a little research on it, it would be distributed leisures. Um, and, I, and I'll just leave that there and we can... Mike, I want to ask you, so a data point from China. Alibaba has captured $100 billion in assets in their wealth management platform, which is, you know, it's kind of a Chinese Yahoo, to, to shorthand what Alibaba is. Does this, all this re- disruption require a regulatory rethink in Canada? Because there are businesses out there from people who haven't historically been in this game. Well, so look, I think most of the innovation that you see does occur outside of the existing regulatory framework. And that's probably the way we want it because, let's face it, regulators probably aren't stereotyped as more innovative. I don't say that critically. They, they have an important role to play to protect a system once things have reached scale. So any, any one of these examples, as they grow, they will increasingly encounter meeting the regulatory requirements that the traditional players already have to deal with. I think that's, that's the way it should be. That's right. It lets new things come to bear. It lets innovation come in that keeps us on our toes so we adapt and innovate. Uh, it lets regulators themselves adapt as these changes come. But importantly, and most important of all, it protects consumers. Uh, And as things reach a point where they become systemically important, then they've got to come under that regulatory umbrella. Otherwise, there's just too many examples of bad things happening to individuals. I'm going to ask Mike, you first, and Linda second. What is the cultural change? What is the imperative that needs to occur within the walls of the bank such that innovation can be a part of how you 
work. Because it isn't just banks, it's big companies. They're not known to being, uh, they're not known at being great at overcoming bureaucracy and inertia in bringing things to market fast and, and new. How do you overcome that? Yeah, so look, Scotiabank's got a, a relatively new CEO in Brian Porter, and Brian's been fairly public about his aspiration for our organization to go through a digital transformation to make some uh, intentional shifts to our culture. And, and we use the word shift um, purposefully as opposed to, say, change. We're not talking about 90-degree turns or 180-degree turns. We're saying we got the foundation right. We've been here for a long time. Uh, but we do need to be more nimble. We do need to be more performance-oriented and operate with a greater sense of urgency. And, in fact, if we're, if we're really honest, we've probably operated uh, in the past as, as looking for really kind of false certainty when you start making assumptions as you're writing business cases and things like that inside a big organization. So how do we let uh, not let perfection become the, uh, the enemy of just good enough? And when we've got enough certainty on something, just move forward and do it quickly. Linda, what's your two cents on the cultural question? Well, I think first I'll just uh, say a bit of a plug for the Canadian banks. Because, you know, the one, the one thing that um, I've heard consistently from the attackers and the innovators, like the Ripples or other blockchain companies, is how engaged Canadian banks are in everything that's going on. And I think because we missed the 2009 crisis, we didn't lose a lot of our innovators inside the banks that were already there. We didn't stop R&D on things like mobile. And as a result, I think we're a lot more engaged than the rest of the world. And I think we often look at you know, payments, to use the example Peter did. The U.S. has a real crisis of confidence in payments. And that doesn't exist in Canada. In the U.S., they pay just as much, but they don't have chip and pin. They have fraud and all sorts of bad things that are occurring that creates a real problem that needs to be solved around confidence in payments and around um, ensuring that consumers are safe and don't get hacked. So I say that just on a positive note, that for banks, we have a good culture on a relative basis in Canada. I think the second point, a lot of what Mike just said, we are still hierarchical. So if you don't have strong leadership at the top who understands both the opportunities and threats, it is going to be a problem. But I think what we're seeing banks do is empowering a lot more nodes of innovation, putting kind of the people like, uh, you know, Andrew and Michael in leadership positions because we know inherently when you've grown up with something that's completely different, a device that is simple, convenient, secure, trust means something different to the younger demographics than it would mean to us at this stage, making sure that they're empowered and their voices are heard and that they are funded to move things forward even if we see it as attacking those profit pools that Peter referred to. Michael, your last company was acquired, correct? What would have you be willing to be acquired again? And I ask because I think that might illuminate something about what you're trying to build within your own little sandbox and being a part of a much, much bigger sandbox that a Canadian financial institution would provide. Uh, the, the very simple answer is I'd be very open-minded to partner but not to sell the business. I mean, I think unlike our last company, uh, we are on a mission to do what it is that, that we're doing, which is make investing much more accessible and simple for everybody. And I think uh, I've been so fortunate to work with a team of people that I'm excited to come to the office with every day and marry that with uh, a problem I'm very passionate about solving. And I think, you know, with our partner power, we actually have a a really wonderful chance to make a difference uh, in this space, and I'd like to see that to fruition as an independent company. I'm going to finish with one last question. Peter, I'm going to ask this one first of you. And uh, that is what I'd like each of you to answer is what your one 
call to action would be for the audience. So you could address them as consumers, us as consumers, as employees, as investors in the big banks, uh, or inventors, entrepreneurs, from whatever perspective. What would be the one thing that you would want people in this room to leave and go think about or go do? Yeah, I referred to it earlier. Uh, Think about or learn about what the existing hierarchy of payment system is and how it works. And then go go think about how a distributed ledger, distributed payment system, uh, might disrupt it. And I'll leave it there. Andrew, call to action. <clears throat> I mean, I'd like everyone to apply for one of our loans. Um, and that, that, I mean, that Outside may, of a self-serving oh, call to action, <laughs> but that you know, that, yeah. that, it's actually one of the uh, call. You know, it's great when there's a call to action that's both self-serving and actually, uh, you know, also good benefit, for the world. Benefit, good for the world because I think even if you don't take one of our loans, I think it's um, it's sort of like your first ride with Uber. You're like, wow, that was actually easy, and it's surprising how there's sort of an alternative out there. So whether it's applying for our product or getting an account with Mike. You know, go try one of the uh, innovators that are out there trying to change uh, this industry. Um, and, you know, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And, and uh, it's the most tangible and sort of visceral way to see how technology and companies like ours are, are uh, trying to change things. Linda, call to action. Well, maybe to show, uh, maybe I'm not innovative enough, though, I do want to echo what Peter said. I do think blockchain is a massive opportunity. People are calling it, you know, the Internet for uh, banking activities. And just, again, to harp on Canada the Great, um, is that as, as uh, the banks are playing a huge role in shaping what's going to happen with blockchain, and we actually have very enlightened regulators. They're conservative, but they understand how to help foster innovation. I do think Canada can help shape that. And, you know, we all benefit from profit pools, but if we can ensure that we stay relevant on a global basis and really capitalize on the trust people have in Canada as a country and the financial services in this country, I think we can partake in a far bigger profit pool on a global level than we do today. Michael. The the one message I'd leave everybody with is uh, please don't watch this change happen. Uh, Please get involved, whether that's at a bank or it's starting a business. I think there's never been such an amazing opportunity to contribute to the massive transformation that I think is going to happen over the next you know, 12, 24, 36 months. And just to give one proof point, our business is 14 months old. And in 14 months, we've grown to, te- to serve 10,000 Canadians and $400 million in assets under management. I mean, you know, who would have thought that would have been possible in a year? Uh, what's possible in another two years? And I'd encourage everybody in this room, if you're excited about that change, um, let's, let's chat about it. And I'd love to support you as you think about your businesses. Mike, last word. So I was going to say switch to Scotiabank, but those guys beat me. Um, no, I would say don't, don't trade um, privacy and security for convenience and customer experience. And we see that happen, and we see uh, Linda and I, I guess, as part of the traditional financial system, we see too often lives that get ruined by breakdowns in security, especially as it relates to privacy. Uh, and, and I think that that trust that we have with our customers is the most sacred thing that we have, and our commitment to protect it is, is always going to be there. But for yourselves as individuals, there's lots of new, cool, uh, new and cool stuff out there. I don't deny it. Uh, just make sure that your safety and security is protected. To our panelists, thank you very much for your insight and your willingness to play well with others. We appreciate uh, your context, your insight. A round of applause. <laughs> Okay, I'll, we'll stay here. Yeah, stay seated. Wonderful. Thank you very much, uh, Bruce. 
as evidenced by the, the, uh, the turnout today and by the, the critical importance of this industry to all of us, it is clear that it is important to all of us that we get this right. And this panel today, I think we all learned that we're on the right path. In the true Canadian tradition, we are able to partner and to see established and new come together for innovation that's going to be customer-focused and take this great industry into the next generation. And there's no doubt under with this leadership and with these experts that we're in great hands. And I'd like to thank Michael, Andrew, Peter, Linda, and Mike. And thank you very much, Bruce, for your masterful uh, moderating role today and getting the best ideas out of such a great and diverse panel. And thank you again. And we look forward to part two and seeing what happens with all these great ideas in the years to come. And I would like to take an opportunity to thank again our great sponsors, ENY, Scotiabank, and RBC, for contributing to the success of today's luncheon. Before we close, I would like to draw your attention quickly to the event survey cards on your table. We appreciate your feedback as we're always looking to improve our experience and bring you great programming. Also, I would like to take the opportunity to wish everybody a very Merry Christmas, all the best for the holidays, and a very happy, prosperous, and blessed New Year. This concludes our program for today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. And we are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continued promotion of Canadian club events. We'd also like to thank Media Events TA, Canada's online event space, and VVC for live streaming of today's event. To learn more about the club, please once again join us and visit us at, our, at canadianclub.org. Thank you again. Happy New Year. Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. This meeting is now adjourned.